Hey, it's Drex from This Week Health Cyber and Risk Community, and I want to invite you to our next webinar. It's going to focus on what else? Defending health data. I'll be chatting with experts from Rubrik and Microsoft. Register right now at thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. That's all one string, R-U-B-R-I-K webinar, thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. See you online soon. Today on This Week Health. Those are the two biggies is safe automation and the patient engagement, patient empowerment. And then if you move away from the technology side, or at least couple it with the technology side, it's teams, right? The care team is what's going to make the difference and everybody working at top of license in a properly staffed environment. And I think that's a huge part of what's going on now. There's not enough nurses. There's not enough PAs. There's not enough doctors. So the ones that are staying behind are just doing more and more and more. It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First, who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, today it's Newsday, and we're joined by Dr. Colin Bannis, CMO for Dr. First. Colin, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let's see. We've got a lot of stuff going on. We still have the common spirit outage. We'll talk about that a little bit. But I think our our lead for today is probably going to be this story. Let's let's go to the Becker's version of this. So Bain Consulting did a survey. This is right in your wheelhouse. 25% of clinicians want out of healthcare. One quarter of U.S. physicians advanced practice providers and nurses are considering switching careers and one third are considering switching employers according to newly released survey. So they had six primary things of the 25% of clinicians who are thinking about exiting healthcare entirely, 89% cite burnout as the main driver. Well, let's stop there for a second. 90% cite burnout of that 25%, right? So if the total number is 1,250, they're saying 90% of those 250 are essentially saying, hey, it's a, it's a burnout issue. This is a serious problem for healthcare, isn't it? Yeah, that, that, that's bonkers to, to think about the amount of time and education that you've put into getting into the healthcare industry in any of those professions and then saying, you know what, I want out altogether. I think that's, it's a crisis. Yeah, that is a great, I mean, what? If you're a physician saying, I want out altogether, what are you going to do? I mean, you you have spent an awful lot of time in training and whatnot. Are you essentially going to head in another direction outside of healthcare? Or are you going to search for maybe a smaller practice, a physician-run clinic or something to that effect? I've seen a couple of flavors of this. I think, at least on the physician side, a lot of them will look for things that they can use their experience and their education that but aren't necessarily taking care of patients. So very similar to my journey where I decided, at least for now, to stop seeing patients while I pursued my CMO role at Dr. First. It's still in healthcare, but it's not directly in the provision of taking care of patients. I think there's a, there's a fair amount of that, whether it's consulting, whether it's the vendor space, et cetera. I've also seen folks get out of the uh, sort of the rat race, like you mentioned, where they'll go 
to a smaller practice or even boutique medicine. I've seen a number of folks go to a boutique medicine where they insurance isn't even accepted. A lot of the stuff that is leading the burnout is sort of taken off of the, the table and they can really focus on taking care of their patients. And then you'll see the occasional, yeah, I went to med school, but now I want to be a lawyer. That's pretty <laughs> rare, but, but I, but I have seen it. That's, that's, that, that is a switch. The concierge medicine thing always, it was interesting to me. Now I've lived in some pretty nice areas. When I was in Huntington beach, California, I ran into a bunch of people that had concierge docs and I asked them about it. I'm like, why are you willing to pay that much out of pocket for this? And they said, look, I had a problem on a Friday night and my docs talked to me. I can text him on a Saturday and he gets back to me. And so there's a group of people that are willing to pay for a higher level of service and really to have somebody who is thinking about that. That's the other thing they cite. They're like, look, I, I did this and this. And my doctor like called me out of the blue said, Hey, I was looking at your stuff. It's like, really? You were looking at, and that's what concierge medicine sort of allows for is, is time, right. To actually practice medicine. The, the, I don't want to say it this way, but it feels this way, the old fashioned way, right? Like we know our patients, we're looking out for them. We know their families and we're looking out for them. It's really yeah. it's a fa fascinating model. Yeah. You're, you're paying for access and you're paying for focus, right? The panels are smaller, but just as you mentioned, you can get them at, at 24 seven. So I think there's a lot of appeal uh, on both sides. All right. So we're, we're going to get back to the intersection of technology and healthcare, but let me give you a few more of these. Nearly 60% of physicians, advanced practice providers, and nurse respondents say their teams are not adequately staffed. 40% feel there is a lack of resources to operate at full potential. And I don't think that's getting any better. Number three, physicians net promoter score dropped 36 points. Well, since the pandemic, essentially, it's, it's dropped 36 points in 2020 to 19 points today. Clinicians at physician-led practices gave a net promoter score of 40 points compared to six points from clinicians at non-physician-led practices, such as those operated by hospitals, health systems, parent companies, or private equity. Does that speak to the size or does that speak to the leadership prowess of physicians when they're running these practices? That's a good question. Maybe when you put the physician in the right role for some of these practices, depending on the physician, it can be a recipe for success, actually. I was more, the comment on the larger health systems and the exodus there, I wonder if that's more of a commentary on the bureaucracy or the friction of practicing in those kinds of environments. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there's an awful lot of, there's more politics, there's more top down. Hey, you will see this many patients You need to do this panel and here's the metrics for this year. And, and they're constantly turning that dial. The next one's interesting. Top three things clinicians care about the most in their profession are compensation, quality of patient care, and workload. According to the survey of these three, they are least satisfied with compensation and then workload. And then 80% said they're satisfied with quality of patient care. We've been talking a lot about the workload. Is the compensation still going down for physicians? I don't think it's rising commensurate with inflation or with other economic pressures. And I think, especially when you sort of put that at the intersection of increasing workload, if it's not going up, it's certainly being perceived internally as, uh, hey, this isn't worth it. I think the workload is probably the more concerning of the three, 
I, I'm not surprised they say the quality of patient care, that's something that they directly control, or at least they perceive that they control. So I'm not surprised that they say that they think they're doing pretty well on that, but the other two are, are killing them. Yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, it, it culminates in this last statement. So number six, burnout shows up throughout clinicians' days with 63% saying they feel worn out at the end of the workday. Now, I, I'm not sure that's different anywhere in our <laughs> economy right now. I think everyone feels a little worn out at the end of the day. 51% saying they feel they don't have the time and energy for family and friends during their leisure time. And that's that's a huge warning sign. And 38% feel exhausted in the morning at the thought of another workday. So that's after resting and going to close to 40% of them say, I just don't want to go into work. And to be honest with you, if this was a friend calling you and said, I'm worn out at the end of my day, I don't have time for my family and friends, and uh, I hate going into work 40% of the, of the time, what would you say to that friend? I mean, you'd have to say, you should be looking at something else. Start looking. Start looking either a different organization or, or a different career path. It's just so difficult because what we started with is the amount of investment that you put in to get to that point. It almost seems unfathomable to, to walk away, which makes this survey even more interesting in my mind that people really are contemplating walking. So at the intersection of technology and healthcare, now I understand that a lot of this is not influenced. There used to be a time where we blame the EHR for everything and we would say, the EHR is causing this problem. That's not what's causing this problem. There's a lot of factors. There's economic factors that we talked about bureaucracy. There's over-documentation on things. There's just the complexity of the job and the demands of the job. But let, let's take all those things and let's just say that's a, a, a large percentage of it. There is a, still a percentage where we can make a difference on the technology side. What are you seeing in the industry as things that are potentially making a difference, as we say, bringing the joy back to practicing medicine, taking the mundane and the complex out of the equation. Yeah, it's automation, right? So anything that can automate the mundane and do it safely, it's a sort of free up the cognitive load to focus back on the patient as opposed to documenting. So that, that makes me think of your ambient listening and, and documentation tools. You know, hopefully the assistants, I don't want to say the one that's sitting in my kitchen because she'll activate, but things like that, I think uh, have a tremendous role in terms of technology. I also think it's time to get the patient more engaged as sort of a force multiplier. So what can I put back on the patient in terms of getting the med list right, reconciling certain data elements, helping to create portions of the note that in their own voice. And I think we're getting there to some extent with things like open notes and shared notes. And we're starting to see 21st century cures really open up all of this patient data. But I think those are the two biggies is safe automation and the patient engagement, patient empowerment. And then if you, if you move away from the technology side, or at least couple it with the technology side, it's, it's teams, right? They, the care team is what's going to make the difference and, and everybody working at top of license in a properly staffed environment. And I think that's a huge part of what's going on now. There's not enough nurses, there's not enough PAs, there's not enough doctors. So the ones that are behind, that, that are staying behind are just doing more and more and more. Yeah. I like that idea of teams. 
whenever we talk about Mayo and the the model of care that they have there in terms of the, the whole team coming together, and they do it at, uh, at Cleveland Clinic as well, and other health systems try to replicate it. I think working in a team, we're able to to sustain each other, help each other in times where things are a little overloaded. Plus, you don't feel as much as when you are the hero, the one person, there's an awful lot of pressure that's associated with that. And so I think that operating as a team is one thing, but getting back to the technology, I agree with you. I think it's automation. I think it's taking out the mundane. I think it's simplifying the EHR as much as possible. I think it's going to bat for the clinicians around the documentation that the government actually needs for some of these things. We need to evaluate that documentation on an ongoing basis of, is this critical to obviously the patient safety and delivery of care, first of all, but second of all, is this information we need to collect? And I think we're still collecting an awful lot of information that's not necessary. And we have put too many, too many burdens around that. So if we can simplify that and go to bat for the clinicians around that, and then provide automation and some of the other tools that can help in that area, I think that's great. We'll return to our show in just a moment. I wanted to take a second to share our upcoming webinar, Cyber Insecurity in Healthcare, the Cost and Impact on Patient Safety and Care. Cyber criminals have shut down clinical trials and treatment studies, cut off hospitals' access to patient records, demanding multi-million dollar ransoms for their return. Our webinar will discuss IT budgeting, project priority, and in-distress communication amongst other things to serve our patients affected by cyber criminals. Join us on November 3rd for this critical conversation. You can register on our website, thisweekhealth.com. Click on the upcoming webinar section in the top right-hand corner. I look forward to seeing you there. All right, let's talk about the not-so-fun one. Ransomware attack impacted some common spirit sites, but few details released. I'm going from an SC Media article and this is pretty recent. Let's see, this is October 17th. So this is yesterday. Now into its third week of care disruptions, a new update from Common Spirit Health confirms that only a portion of its 700 care sites and 142 hospitals in 21 states have been impacted by the attack. There's no impact to clinic, patient care, and associated systems at, and they rattle off Dignity Health, Virginia Mason, TriHealth, and Centura Health Facilities, officials said in a statement. Patients continue to receive the highest quality of care, and we are providing relevant updates on an ongoing situation to our parents, employees, and caregivers. Patient safety has been central. You get that picture. Dignity Health has, is made up of 12 hospitals or care facilities, and then they go through and they rattle off each one of these. It appears the bulk of the impact is concentrated in CHI facilities and Virginia Mason Franciscan Health outside of BMMC. It appears that the impact is much smaller than sensationalized reports note. However, Carter Groom, First Health Advisory CEO, recently explained patients suffer when their care is delayed, disrupted, and otherwise diverted. Indisputable consequences. And then they have John Moore from Clearwater. Chief Risk Officer who says, you have to really understand what's going on here and we shouldn't throw stones and glass houses, so forth. And uh, this is a major attack by a nation state or whatever. It shouldn't be trivialized and we should not blame the victim here and whatnot. So a couple things about this, and I'll, I'll say the things, because I, I know I, when I bring people like you on, you're working with some of these 
health systems and some of these hospitals. So I don't want to put you in a bad spot. But when I read this and I've been on the other side of attacks, not a ransomware attack, but the other side of breaches, I've interviewed people who've gone through the breaches and the ransomware attacks as well. And I do understand that right now there's an awful lot at work, right? So the FBI is involved. We have, so it's a crime scene. We have, we are trying to restore the environment as quickly as we possibly can. We're trying to communicate what we can out there. But here's, here's the thing I do know, and I'm not throwing stones in a glass house. We will know how prepared this organization was for this type of event by how long it takes them to restore. That's, that's the telltale. If it takes them longer than four weeks to restore this, they were not prepared for this. Now, they might be prepared at these facilities, Dignity Health and whatever, but you don't get to say that. You don't get to say, hey, we're, we're still secure over at these 10 sites or these 50 or 100 sites even when you've decided to consolidate and make the fourth largest health system in the country. Like if we were breached at our health system and I said, hey, this is only impacting three or four hospitals and they're going to be down for a month. You just don't get to, you don't get to say that. The other thing is there's a little discrepancy here on the communication. There are people at the common spirit facilities that are saying, we don't know what's going on. And communication is so critical at this point. They are, you're talking about frontline people who have to communicate with patients who are coming in for their appointments or coming in for their chemo treatments or whatever. And you're saying, Hey, I don't know when it's going to be back up. I don't know what's going on. And they're complaining in the newspaper. Now I'm sure they're, they're, they're not supposed to be complaining in the newspaper and that kind of stuff, but they don't know what's going on. So it feels to me like the big merger between these two organizations of Dignity Health, Common Spirit and CHI, they were not fully integrated yet. Their security practices weren't fully integrated their communication, and they had not practiced for a downtime of this magnitude. And so if you, if you put it on the scale of fully prepared and chaos, I think it's closer to the chaos than it is the fully prepared at this point, at least at this magnitude. So that's, that's Bill Russell. That does not reflect the thoughts or opinions <laughs> of Colin Bannis or his company at all. But I, I mean, that's former CIO looking at this from the outside. And I don't know anything I have talked to some people who, who have worked at the organization and that kind of stuff, and they've given me some insights, but I'm not sharing any of those insights. I'm just essentially saying, just based on the articles I'm reading, that's, that's how I'm seeing this. Have you, have you gone through a ransomware or a breach at any of your health systems? I have not. And now I don't have any wood to knock on. So you've kind of jinxed me there, <laughs> but now a couple, couple of thoughts come to mind. One. It certainly does sound like the perfect storm of timing in terms of not having been fully integrated, fortified, unified in the merger. I think that probably is a big part of it. Where a lot of the, the information is coming from is Reddit. I don't know, but people are getting burner Reddit accounts and posting on their experience of what they think is going on there. And so I do think it's concerning when people say, your own employees are saying, we don't know what's going on, as you pointed out. I think that just sows fear and trickles down to the patient-patient experience, et cetera. In my former CMIO role, we, we certainly did a, a number of simulations 
for natural disasters and downtimes. But I think I left when I left my, my role, which was around 2019. Yeah. Ransomware was obviously a thing, but it wasn't a thing that it is now. I think it's really accelerated in the past three years. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if that isn't, as you pointed out on the show many times, the CISO's number one priority in, in fortifying. The other thing that comes to mind is, and I've mentioned this uh, one other time that we got together, is the importance of business continuity planning. So not just the cybersecurity aspect of it, but you know, if and when it does come, how are you going to keep critical systems functioning? You heard me earlier, at least on impulse power. And I will say that Dr. First is proud to, to be working with Common Spirit to get them enabled for things like e-prescribing and med reconciliation in a web-based and mobile-based format. So at least uh, the care can continue. I think that's an important thing that often gets overlooked is the downtime or the business continuity. So that's something that we probably need to emphasize more as an industry. The business continuity is, especially in healthcare, such a, such, such a huge aspect, but it takes, it takes time. It takes planning ahead of time. And so when you're dealing with it after the fact, and you haven't put those plans together, how are you going to do how are you going to function without the EHR for an extended period of time? How are you going to get those records? How are you going to reconcile those records? The other thing that happens and people aren't, if you continue to do care, if you're able to continue to do care without the EHR and you go to paper, cause we, we had to do this a couple of times at St. Joe's. In fact, prior to, prior to me getting there, there was eight outages in six weeks, which is one of the reasons I ended up in the job at St. was to fix that problem. And they. They were telling me on the amount of time it took them to put all that documentation back into the EHR post those events is, is a, a significant burden. We just got done talking about how much of a burden it is already on the clinicians. And now you have to figure out how to do all that. We've got about, let's see, we've got about nine to 10 minutes. We got six, we got three, three more stories that I'm going to hit on here. So Instacart, this is an interesting one for me. And because it, it leads to one of the things we know, I mean, you're the doctor, but you would tell me, I remember when I was talking to a doctor, I'm like, what do I have to do around this? And he says, Bill, the answer to this hasn't changed in a hundred years. It's diet and exercise, right? You're, you know, what you put into your body and how you exercise your body are going to determine to a large degree, your health outside of conditions that you are dealt with at birth and those kind of things. So this is an interesting one and another attempt to really get people healthy food. So Instacart launches health business as it readies for IPO. Grocery delivery uh, services company Instacart has launched Instacart Health, which it says will work to make nutritious food more accessible and address social determinants of health. Instacart Health aims to expand the role food can play in improving health outcomes. Actually, they're not going to expand the role food can play in healthcare outcomes because it just, it just does that. But they're really work on access to that food. The move comes as Instacart is preparing to launch an initial public offering. Instacart was launched in, coordinated, in coordination with the White House, Instacart Health, White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health. Instacart CEO participated in the conference, underscoring the intersection of food and health, as well as the role of private companies. Instacart has become the staple for millions of households during the pandemic. As we know, a lot of people were calling them up and having stuff delivered. According to Instacart, one in 10 people in the United States 
don't have access to reliable, nutritious food. Among Instacart's new products and partnerships is Fresh Funds, which enables organizations of all types to give people funds to buy nutritious food from grocery stores on the Instacart app. So let me ask you this. I mean, I, I assume you, I, I assume you like this, right? You like like this kind of offering as a physician. Yeah, I think this is. I think this is cool. I think this is Meals on Wheels 2.0 in terms of being able to unite something as important as nutrition with the folks who need it. It feels very much like Uber getting into the healthcare that we've been talking about over the past couple of years and sort of these non-traditional entrants into the health and wellness space. So I'm all for it. So prescribing food plants, I assume that that's been around for a while. I mean, have we done it in partnership with Meals on Wheels for those millennials out there is the Instacart of 20 years ago. And actually, I think they're still around. I'm sure they're still around. Yeah, they are. It's a great ministry, great outreach uh, to the community, but taking meals to people that can't otherwise make their own meals or have access to it. What's it going to take? I mean, we know how important it is. What's it going to take for this to really take off? Is it a change in how health systems get paid for some of this work in order for this to take off? Because it's, it's such an important piece. I'm just curious. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a huge one, right? This is your capitation or your value-based care saying flip the model from episodic to keeping patients out of the hospital. I think that's a huge part of it. And this is why folks like your Kaisers or your folks in large value-based care contracts are successful because they they start to focus on the upfront, the wellness, the nutrition, the exercise. I also think back to the idea of the care team and the, the lack of potential resources. I don't think we have enough dietitians and nutritionists. They were godsend when I was in my hospitalist role, being able to consult with them and they're stretched thin. So I, th I think there's a workforce shortage in terms of folks who really have the expertise to do this sort of nutrition, counseling, et cetera. Yeah. I think it would be interesting when you send people home to say, Hey, three days a week, we're going to prescribe this three days a week. You're going to be getting meals from Instacart and we're going to be determining what those meals are. Cause I mean, essentially we send people into the grocery store, we send them home and they may not have access, but even if you send me to the grocery store, I'm going to go down the wrong aisles and pick up the wrong stuff. And as long as I'm doing that, there's a better than average chance I'm not going to get to the other other side of whatever ails me. The hospital needs to evolve. If I just told you that's the title of the next article, what would your thoughts be on that one? It would almost mirror the topics we just touched on in terms of reimbursement, why the EHR is structured the way it is, why care teams are structured the way they are, and why is there such a focus on episodic care as opposed to wellness? So it, it would, it would very much touch on a lot of the topics we've already talked about. Yeah. So the hospital needs change. He starts with this, the hospital industrial complex focused on fee-for-service growth and market power will decline as margins shrink and local mergers are killed by antitrust review. Again, that's a, that's, this is conjecture. This isn't a news article. This is, this is a blog article. It's workweek.com. Blake Madden and 
Let's see. He goes on further, assuming the tough operating environment continues. My guess is that hospitals will move towards risk-based contracting. I agree, especially as payers build out their clinical service assets. It's interesting. The Optum, United Healthcare, and the others, Cigna, Evernorth, and others, CVS, Aetna, when they, they start off on that, they're already getting that first dollar of pay. And now they're headed, heading into the clinical side. And it seems like that, tra that transition's a little easier because they have the, the, they have the money and they already have the right business model, right? They're, they're getting paid every month by someone to keep them he healthy. And the health systems are, are struggling to make that transition of, but it, it seems like people want to pay for health, like as a service, health as a service. That's what we want to pay for. But when the health system comes in there, they have to really change their business model. They have to stand up a new set of practices and go to market. Now, some have done that. Intermountain has done that, going out with a significant health plan. Sharp has a significant health plan. Kaiser, as you mentioned, has a significant health plan out there. And, uh, and others have been able to do that on a regional, regional basis as well. And when they do that, they're, they seem to be ready to go on to the next level. I mean, they're able to provide that high acuity care, but they're also able to have sort of a, a more uniform income and start to work on those things that are social determinants. Are you seeing, or do you feel like we're going to see more health systems, as he says, head in that, in the risk-based contract? I hate to say the word value-based care. I understand what they're saying when they say that term, but this one, it's just more tangible to me. Risk-based contracting. We are going to get a certain amount of the population under a risk-based contract where we're responsible for their health. Do you think we're going to see more health systems head in this direction? I do, although we've been saying this for two decades now, it feels like. And while it's starting to come, it, the, the transition is slow. My CEO and my former role used to talk about this because for, for the smaller health systems, when you're not a Intermountain or a Sharp or someone with a lot of size to maybe be able to live in both worlds simultaneously, the analogy he would, he would always bring up is it's like standing in two boats astride simultaneously. One boat is the fee for service and one boat is the risk-based contracting. And how can you possibly keep them both afloat without you falling in? And so I do think we're going to start to see that because I, I think something has to fundamentally change in the way that we finance healthcare. I mean, a GDP is pushing, what, 20%? A lot of people considered that the tipping point for when the whole thing sort of falls in on itself. And so I think a lot of what ails us in healthcare is, of course, a direct result of the way that we finance it, the way that we operate it. The notes that I write, the, the regulations that I have to follow, et cetera, et cetera. It all ties back to the dollar. Well, it, and it's a different business that requires different people and different skills. But at St. Joe's, we had a we had an insurance practice, insurance carrier, and we ended up shutting it down and selling it off because we didn't run it real well. We lost money. I know at Providence, one of the biggest losses we had in the first couple of years was Providence's insurance business out of Oregon, which just that didn't, didn't function real well. It's a different business entirely. It's, it's interesting that United and Optum are separate businesses mm -hmm. and probably run by completely different. I mean, CEO at the top, but, but run by completely different 
operating organizations because they're run differently. They're, they're, they, they think differently. CVS Aetna, probably the same thing. If I thought about it. And so the, the first thing, if you're a healthcare organization heading in this direction is understand you're building out a new business entirely, and you're not going to be able to take this person over here and just pop over there and say, okay, you're now head of strategy for this business. It's a different business. It's, it's really interesting. Not much from a technology standpoint here, except I've talked to some of these people that are CIOs over the insurance business as well as the risk-based contract business and the healthcare provider business. Again, one of the things I will say is the analytics on the insurance carrier business is, is so critical. I mean, they, it's critical on the, on the delivery side too, but on the carrier side, it's, it's, it's just, it's where the money's made. It's where the rubber meets the road for them. So obviously something you need to do extremely well. Last story, we'll just touch on this. Interland's $500 million investment creates image sharing network, managing 80 billion images. So let's see. Interland says it's going to purchase a life image out of Newton, Massachusetts. And this follows another acquisition of Penrad Technologies earlier this year and Amber Health last year. And essentially what they're building is a national network for sharing of images across the, across the board. And they're talking about this. What is it? Lose the disc. Something the disc. Is there? Ditch the disc. Ditch, ditch it. Oh, ditch the disc. Yeah. Oh, ditch the disc. That's yeah. right. Ditch the disc. And so we're getting to a point where we're going to be able to share images nationally across this. It's interesting because it looks like their strategy for getting to interoperability is just to buy everybody in this space. Hey, more power to them. I mean, this <laughs> is probably one of the most requested things that I would get hit with in my CMIO role was how come we can't see the images from the hospital across the street? And by the, towards the end of my tenure, we got to the point where you could do sort of a point to point connection between the, the PAC systems, but the amount of legwork that I had to do to submit a request and someone on the, on the radiology side had to sort of go in and work their magic to bring those images across. It just, it was so painful. And, and you know, what inevitably happens is people are like, forget it. I'll just repeat the scan and the amount of waste in repeat scans, uh, especially for these large academic health systems or large tertiary hospitals is mind boggling. So if you had a legitimate network that started to push these images across the ether, you bet your, you bet your uh, dollar that folks would pay for it. Yeah. They absolutely would pay for it. Whereas the HIE model seems to sort of be floundering because no one can figure out a way to, to pay for it. Yeah. I've told my story on this a couple of times on the show, but we were able to do this in radiology with the PAC systems, we consolidated into a single system. We went to a cloud model. We were able to share and, and they could do reads pretty much anywhere in the country, even the world for that matter, based on the VNA and other things that we had set up. Radiology, uh, yeah, cardiology, radiology, I'm sorry, radiology packs. We did cardiology packs, complete failure on my part. I, I, <laughs> I could not wrangle that one in and, and make that one work. And I, I'm not sure that's what they're talking about here. Those images are massive in size. So 
if they're able to do that, then they will really have done something. And I will be, I will be incredibly impressed. Interesting uh, business model do the consolidation through acquisition. Uh, again, if you, if you can do it, if uh, you don't get any pushback and you can stand that up, then more power to you. Colin, as always, fantastic conversation. Great to talk to you and really appreciate your insight. You know me. I love being known. <laughs> Look forward to seeing you. Am I going to see you at uh, Chime Fall Forum or any of those? Chime Fall Forum. And I've been told that I might get to play golf. So I'm looking forward to that. Wow. Well, maybe I'll see you out there. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks again, Colin. What a great discussion. If you know someone that might benefit from our channel from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note, perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show just like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com. They can also subscribe wherever they listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. We want to thank our Newsday sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.